Well, open your Bibles to Esther chapter 8. Esther chapter 8. Uh, the Trinity, as we've sung this morning and listened to the... Trying a new stopwatch, sorry. Uh, and, and listened to this uh, piano. The, the doctrine of the Trinity is, makes us distinctive. Uh, yes, there are other world religions that worship, as they say, one God. But not the same God. We worship a different God than the Muslim. We worship a different God than the Jew. Well, that may be a little stirring, but we believe God has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. That's different than the Jew believes. It's a different God. Uh, nonetheless, we're in chapter 8 of Esther. Dates are important. Maybe you've, you've noticed the uh, date of, of just uh, last Friday, November 11th, and it was Veterans Day, and some of you made your rounds at the restaurants and got all the free food. Um, I refrained myself. Um, but why, why is it the 11th of November? It's always the 11th of November. It goes back to 1918 and the armistice after the First World War. And it was on the 11th day of the 11th month at the 11th hour that the armistice was supposed to go into effect. Now that's 11 o'clock French time. It was 12 o'clock noon in Germany. Uh, the reports, however, are that there were still rounds of artillery going around for, until about 6 o'clock at night or so. Um, but the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. I did a little digging to try to find out if anyone actually planned that, and I couldn't find it with the short time that I had. But we have an important date or two uh, when we come to Esther chapter 8. We, uh, we remember the 11th of November in, in the West, particularly the U.S. and the, 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 our continent, we call it more of a Veterans Day. Uh, the Brits call it Remembrance Day. And it, it, it encompasses the, the, the breadth of those that uh, would have given their lives for freedom. We'll come to that, that kind of celebration uh, in the next chapter or two when we look at Purim and the festival that is there. But here we have a, an ominous kind of day the, the day that Haman determined to slay all the Jews throughout the whole empire was the 13th day of the 12th month. I know for sure it was a Friday. I don't know that for sure. I don't know that for sure. If you have time and you want to dig and figure out what year it really was and where it really was the month of June, I think, somewhere in there, uh, Maybe you can figure out if it was a Friday. But nonetheless, the 13th day does carry an ominous tone to it, even when it's not on Friday, doesn't it? You, I, I suspect you notice when it's the 13th day of the month. And I can't, my wife doesn't, I can't help but consider the possibility that the world has this fear of the 13th because of the story in Esther. These dates are important. Now, Mordecai comes along, and we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but now it's be the 23rd day of the third month 
he writes a contradictory edict. Important days. Well, we're going to work through the chapter. Again, we'll look, we'll look through this one um, more in the narrative sense and little, little hangers as the story progresses. The first two verses talk about the promotion. The promotion. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Esther had been promised, remember how much? Up to half the kingdom she'd been promised. And, and she gets, probably, arguably, uh, the largest estate within the empire is now in her name. And she hands the management of that because she's a queen and she doesn't have to get her hands dirty. I don't know. She, I mean, she's a hands-on kind of gal from what we've seen. But she delegates the administration of the house over to her cousin, Mordecai. And, and she, she tells now the king who Mordecai is is to her. But it's not who, it's what he is to her. Interesting. So it, we've got to assume it probably involves that they're related, that they're cousins, and that Mordecai has cared for her as an orphan child before she was abducted and brought into uh, the, the sex trade, in, in essence, uh, a sex slave unto the king. And he watched out and took care of, of Esther. And now, now Ahasuerus realizes, oh, I've got a son-in-law or a brother-in-law, sorry. Well, who knows the ages. But Mordecai is now related to Ahasuerus by marriage. Like, wow. But there's more than that kind of what Mordecai is to Esther. I mean, throughout this, we've seen them working as a team. And again, she's delegated the management of the household to uh, Mordecai, her cousin. Mordecai is important to Esther. Esther's important to Mordecai. Together, they have accomplished great things thus far. Esther tells the king, I need this guy around. And we know this in teams. We know this in dynamics, don't we? Working teams need to have... Um, a chemistry, an ability to work together. Pulling in the harness in the same direction, in the same rate, but not with exactly the same skill set. Complementary to one another. So this promotion comes, but not all is well. The plan that Haman began is still in place. And so Esther brings her plea, verses 3 to 6. Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman. Esther knows that her mission is not yet complete. Interesting, the, she falls at the feet of the king pleading. Now, who did this just recently? Haman fell at her feet pleading. Didn't work. Will it work for Esther? Will it work for Esther? Well, indeed, the king extended his scepter to her, and she was accepted. But... Esther doesn't take comfort in the fact that she and Mordecai are safe. She doesn't rest in that false sense of security. I mean, how safe really is she? Maybe she could avoid Haman's plot 
uh, being in the, the Citadel area. Um, but, I mean, at a whim, the queen before her is gone. And, and at a greater uh, passion, the prime minister was just executed and replaced. You know, there's not a lot of security within the king's court. But there can be that false sense of security. Well, wow, okay, Mordecai, we avoided that one. I don't think, I don't think we'll escape. But she's not done, and she realizes it's not just about her. It's about the people of God. It's about people out there that are still locked in this decree of death. Now, how easily it would be for us to rest in our supposed comforts and not continue not to press on in the mission that God has given us to proclaim and plead for the life of God's people. Well, this illusory uh, finery indeed is just that. And to Esther, the most important thing is not her own comfort, but the deliverance of her people. Well, verses 7 to 12 go on and bring uh, the bulk of this narrative. And um, again, if, if we could read this with a comical eye, you know, this is serious stuff. It's a comedy in the sense that it ends happy, at least for the good people, the people at the white hats, so to speak. But there's in, in this adventure and in this intrigue, it's, it's more kind of a, uh, uh, a spoof. I mean, we've seen the, the goofiness of the king, his gullibility, his inability to make decisions. We've seen all these things all of a sudden hit fast pace, high speed. It's like watching, um, um, oh goodness, the Keystone Cops. All of a sudden, it's in fast motion, and they're running around, scurrying around, and throwing pies. That, that's the kind of pace and the kind of literature that's moving on in Esther. It's a spoof. Uh, but the bulk of this now is the policy. Verses 7 12. The law of the Medes and Persians cannot be revoked. Even the emperor himself cannot revoke it. And that, that really probably has to do to save face. I mean, if the king has to change uh, a command or a law, that means he made a mistake. And he can't admit to making a mistake. So the rule is we don't change the laws because the emperor never makes a mistake. Can't revoke this one. Esther pleads, pleads with Ahasuerus. And whether, whether she understands that it was one of those laws of the Medes of Persians or not, we don't know, but she pleads nonetheless. And Ahasuerus says, Honey, it's set. I can't change it. It's one of those laws of the Medes and Persians. Can't revoke it. What I can do for you is give, give, give you and Mordecai the ability to write another edict and figure out yourselves the best way to go. You know, again, uh, Ahasuerus is, is, in a sense, big-hearted, loving his, his queen, uh, and yet he's still in, unable to directly step in and fix the problem. Mordecai can't. 
So Mordecai, Mordecai writes this policy, and as he writes this, it's in essence the same wording as Haman's edict in chapter 3. Now, if you're going to uh, contradict the previous edict, you've got to have something that's on equal standing and with as much force and power as the first edict. There's no real better way to do that than to use exactly the same wording, only turn it around. And that's what Mordecai does. It is wise. It's shrewd. And this, this all has happened, this first edict to the second edict, has occurred in about 70-day period of time. And, and as we mentioned the dates earlier, uh, from this time until the 12th of the month is about eight months' time. So everybody, Jew and Gentile alike, have got eight months to prepare for this one day of battle. But it's limited to the one day. Both, both edicts, both decrees were limited to the one day. But these terms, these three terms, annihilate, kill, destroy, women and children, those, those are word for word from the first one. And uh, it, it becomes difficult to read. I don't know if how you felt when it, when it was read, verse 11 especially. The king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. Uh, the grammar can be a little difficult. The translations uh, can be challenging. NIV goes one direction. Most other translations go this direction that we just read. Yes, kill, annihilate, destroy anyone who attacks, even women and children. How do we, how do we pull this together? Well, on the back side of your outline, if you picked one up, uh, we'll, we'll call this the problem. The policy doesn't have a problem, but as we read it from our Western New Testament perspective, we, we perceive a problem. How do we deal with this tit-for-tat, eye-for-eye kind of uh, retribution? Jesus, Jesus didn't he say in Matthew chapter 5, love your enemies. So how do, we, how do we work through this? Is there this big of a distinction in character and nature between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament? Is it a different God? That was one heresy that was taught. Same God. And don't confuse my statements earlier this morning that we worship a different God than the Jews. We worship the same God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. The same God. We do. The Jews' understanding of the God of the Old Testament is wrong. 
and it leaves out the coming of Messiah who has come in Jesus. Well, we, we need to somehow get a little handle on this. First of all, realize that this is not a genocide uh, on God's part commanding to the, to the Jews. This is not an ethnic cleansing on the Jews' side of things. They're, they're simply to respond defensively to whatever group would come at them. And as we read this carefully, it's a non-aggression pact. They're, they have the right of self-defense, but not to go out looking for someone to attack. And they are permitted this self-defense. And, and they are able to kill, annihilate, destroy, and plunder any force that would come after them, including a force composed of women and children. Can, can women folk be mean-spirited and go to battle? Can they, can they look over at the neighbor's stuff and say, hmm, the government said I could go over there and take it on this special 13th day of the month. I really, I really like what she's got over there. I think I'm going to go get her a cup of sugar. That kind of, of even greed can motivate an otherwise nice person to do grievous things. Can children, can children be mean? Yeah. We've been those children sometimes. And we've shot at other kids. Oh, maybe not necessarily with a BB gun, but with words, even punches. Well, this is a self-defense non-aggression kind of treaty. But also we have to realize that this, this is in a national and political context. We're dealing with nations. And while we have been seeing God working in the book of Esther and seeing God working through an Esther and a Mordecai, we, we also must remember God is not overtly mentioned and this, this is a, an earthy book. This is a geopolitical book. This is how a people group is surviving in exile surrounded by a bunch of other people groups. They're held captive. This is about national policy. This is, has nothing to do with the church directly. And so we, we need to understand that, that Rules, even biblical guidelines for nations, are going to involve things differently than it does for us as families or for us as a church. And recognize that, that the, the state or the nation does, in fact, have the responsibility to mete out justice. In Romans 13, in verse 4, the, the servant of, of the state, the government, is God's servant for your good. 
if you do wrong, be afraid. He doesn't bear the sword in vain. He doesn't bear the sword in vain. He is God's servant and avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. This is a God-given role of the government, of the state, to mete out justice on the international level, on the national level. And indeed, God uses nations to judge other nations. God, yes, we can go back to some of those difficult passages in Joshua and Judges, and we, we read of how Israel was, was brought into the land of Canaan to, to uproot the godless Canaanites who had rejected God. God uses the nation of Israel to judge unbelieving nations. But God would also judge Israel in exactly the same way. For Assyria would come in to the north and Babylon would come in after Assyria and deport Israel out of the land, away from the temple, and to exile. As a judgment, God uses the nations to judge the nations. And he's not, he's not partial toward Israel in that sense. Treats them exactly the same way as any other nation. God uses nations to punish other nations. And war and conflict is that sword-bearing act. But there is a little bit more to this. There is a, a redemptive historical, there's a, a spiritual warfare kind of thing going on here. The Messiah would descend from the line of David, from the line of Abraham. God had promised Abraham that there would be a seed, there would be a son, that he would have a land, and he would be a blessing to the nations. We read Matthew chapter 1 and realize very quickly that Jesus is the descendant of David, the descendant of Abraham. Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, is the one anticipated that would come through those Abrahamic and Davidic lines. And, and it has been the, the, the goal of the enemy since the beginning of our creation to eradicate that line. Satan the serpent, the dragon, has been trying to eradicate the godly line ever since the beginning. He got Adam and Eve tempted and to fall into sin, thinking that that would plunge, you know, okay, there can, be no, there can be no Messiah that comes if those people are already fallen, but God has wiser plans. He promised that a seed would come from the woman and crush the serpent's head. So Cain and Abel are born, and Abel looks like he's, he's, he's the seed. But Cain, Satan's crouching at his door. Sin is crouching at his door. We'll personify it as Satan, the evil one, longing to devour him. And indeed does. And so Cain kills Abel, the seed of promise. We can jump further ahead then when Pharaoh has the baby boys of the Israelites uh, slain, infantized, infanticide, infantasy, infanti killing of infants, infanticide. And then again, Herod. These are not, these are not only kings and rulers. They are. 
They're antichrist. They're instruments of Satan to try to stop the line of Messiah coming into the world. And so God, knowing all of this ahead of time, sovereign and providential in all of his goodness and all of his decrees, but working in history, working in human life to preserve that line until that fullness of time when Christ is born of a woman. And God is preserving his, this, this line until that day. That's what's going on. But now that Messiah has come, now that the Christ is here, there is no longer any need for Israel to wage any kind of holy war at all. In fact, there's really no reason for any nation or country to wage any kind of holy war. The only person who's qualified to wage holy war now is Jesus himself. And he will when he returns. In Revelation chapter 19, we have the anticipation of his return. And he comes on his war stallion with his manifest armies behind him. Lord Sabaot, Yahweh Sabaot. Lord of the hosts. And he will wage war against all nations that rebel against him. And only Christ is the pure heart and the pure hands to wage such a holy war. He is the only one who has the right as creator and redeemer. But God does judge sin and he does judge sinners. He judges all sin and he judges all sinners. And that includes women and children. God indeed does judge Remember when, when Abraham is pleading for even Sodom and Gomorrah? I mean, he's in this conversation with the Lord and going back and forth and he's praying, Lord, even for 50 righteous, would you destroy the city? For 40? For 10 righteous people, would you destroy the city? And, and here's, here's Abraham's rationale in Genesis 18.25. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare even as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? The judge of the earth will do what is right. He will do righteousness. And Now, even in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, we realize there was no one righteous. No, not one. Now, Lot and his two daughters were, were brought out of it, but not because of their righteousness, but because of their relationship to Abraham, who pleaded for them. So, uh, that's important. We, we easily and wrongly view sin abstractly. We depersonalize it. We dehumanize it. We do that sometimes for our own consciences, 
But we do this just across the board. But the Scripture is very clear, and I think if we're honest with our experience, it jives with the, the teaching of God's Word. Romans chapter, 10, uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, quote two other Old Testament passages. So it's not just one verse that says this. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They've all turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The psalmist would say, in sin did my mother conceive me. Not that her action was wrong, but that the sin nature, that fallen Adam aspect in this world begins at the moment of life. Conception. You see, our, our doctrine of, of life impacts a lot of other doctrines, doesn't it? The sin nature begins at conception. The Bible says so. So our children come into this world already rebels of God, defiant of their Creator. I know that sounds hard. I'm simply quoting the Scriptures to you. But if, if every man, woman, and child deserves to be judged by the Creator because of sin, being sinful and doing sin, these passages of judgment are demonstrating God is judging now. God is judging sin, and God is judging the sinner even now. And He uses means in order to accomplish that end. And sometimes it's a flood. And sometimes it's hellfire and brimstone coming from the sky. And sometimes it's an army. God is doing His work. Now, we'll come back to this, but we must get back to our passage. Verses 13 to 14, we'll call this the Pony Express. The copy was written and issued as a decree to every province, being publicly displayed to all the peoples, and the Jews were ready to, on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were raised in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. These, these horses are faster than the horses that Haman set out. It says so. Compare, compare the couriers and the kind of horses they get. These these couriers get horses directly from the king's stud. These are like the race horses. Now, whether the intent is for those couriers to catch up to the other couriers, because it'd take about three months for these to get all the way to the far reaches of the empire. 
And we're only 70 days in. So some, some of these couriers are still on their way to the far reaches of the empire. And now these racehorse guys might just catch up to them. And they'll get both decrees at the same time. Just something to ponder. So off they go. And again, they get, things are fast-paced. Everything's hurry up now. Well, verses 15 to 17, I, I suppose after our conversation thus far, it's a little difficult to understand this as the party. But the Jews are happy, and I guess you can understand that to some extent. They get rightfully, legally to defend themselves in this situation. Mordecai went out uh, of the presence of the king in his royal robes of blue and white. We recognize that white and blue are the king's favorite colors. This is the color of the parties that have been uh, in his kingdom hall all along. I think this is maybe the eighth. Uh, no, no, no. There's been a lot of parties in this book. Verse 16, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. There is a sense of relief. Great relief. Light, gladness, joy, honor. A holy day. Now, uh, yesterday, it was, it was not politically savvy, was not financially expedient to be anywhere connected with the Jews. But today, with the new edict, it's advantageous to be connected with the Jews. And so some people take advantage of that. I, I, I don't know that this is, we could say that this is revival. I don't know that we could say that they, they actually converted to Judaism. Uh, that would be an entirely different process. But they're at least identifying with their good neighbors, the Jews. Um, we still do that with religion. When, when it's expedient, we'll, we'll connect with religious folk. We'll, we'll connect with the church. We'll connect with Christians. Our politicians still in, do that to a great extent. It's changing. Uh, but thus far, to be elected president... Uh, the closer you're connected with some kind of Christian group, the better your chances of getting the vote. But it trickles down to us, too. Why are you here? Build your network? Um, it's advantageous in some capacity. Just be careful. Check your heart. Now, um, how would we round out all of this? When the victory comes, when the hope of victory comes, we can rejoice. We sang about the hope uh, that is ours this morning in our song service. We have a faith, we have a hope. We have love. And it ought to cause us to rejoice and be glad, to be light and to have honor. 
But more than this, God is the king of the universe, and indeed, he has pronounced a decree, a decree of death. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he says, the wages of sin is death. The day, Adam and Eve, you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. It's a decree that God made and that God will not revoke. It is more set and established than the law of the Peds and the Persians. and the Persians. The, the Medes and the Persians. We'll trust the Holy Spirit put that there for just a little relief. God's decrees are steadfast. The wages of sin is death. And we are born into this world, as we said, conceived with that sin nature. Men and women, boys and girls, 90-year-olds and nine-day-year-olds, And God has not removed that decree, and he will not remove that decree. It's, it's difficult reflecting on the last year, the last year and a half in our church body. And we see the reality of a fallen world and the death of our friends, our family, our loved ones. But it's a, it's a poignant reminder to us of our frailty and of this decree of God. But it doesn't end there. God brought forth another decree, a decree of redemption, a decree of salvation. And everyone who comes under Christ is free. The, the decree of death is accomplished and fulfilled in the work of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for sin. For the sins of the world, the Bible says. And that decree, if you're, if you're in Christ, then you overcome that first decree. Christ died in your place. He died for you, the, the ultimate, the eternal death, so that you are not condemned by God. You don't come under the wrath of God because Jesus took the full wrath of God. God fulfilled the law of sin and death when he gave Jesus to bear our sins and die on the cross. But when God raised him from the dead, he put this new decree into effect and makes it possible for sinners to be saved. And in that, we rejoice and are glad and are light and feast on the goodness of God. Let's pray. Indeed, Father, we, we uh, are 
weighted down a bit with the heaviness of reality of what goes on in this world. We uh, were weighted by the grief of sin and death. But as we have reflected on the whole of Scripture, we thank You for sending Your Son. Thank You for indeed being righteous and just and holy, but thank You for being love. God, You loved the world in such a way that You sent Your Son that whoever would believe in Him would have life. Not because of our own righteousness, nothing we have done. In fact, despite all we have done, we can be free because of what Jesus has done. May we accept that now and find this new life in Christ and give us that joy of salvation and Your strength to be our joy. Lord, as, as we come, we bring the needs of our church family to You. We ask that You would continue to work for healing and strengthening for those in our midst who are recovering uh, from procedures and surgeries, those that have been battling sickness uh, and disease, those that are in current treatment. We ask for You to sustain them. We ask for You to enable them, and bring measures of healing. We pray for other needs in our body, for financial concerns these days. And we ask that you would give us work. You would give us uh, stewardship and industry to, through those things, provide for our daily bread. And not only that, but to give and minister to others who have less, and especially those who have never heard of Jesus. Lord, as we consider our special giving this season, we ask your blessing on the missionary Christmas offering. Our committee has set a, a generous goal. Enable us to catch that vision and to give. For other acts of, of giving, uh, be it the Thanksgiving baskets or the shoe boxes for kids, bless those, Lord, not only, not only for we who would do and give, but for those who would receive. And may it open doors of gospel conversation of which give us opportunity for gospel conversation as we go through this season to speak of Jesus and all that He is. As we consider national days like, like the elections, Veterans Day. Indeed, we, we have the hearts of patriots. We're grateful for the freedoms that we have enjoyed and the advantages that it has been even to be a Christian. But we see these things changing. We see it less to, our, to an advantage to be a Christian, but that is going to 
increase our faith, is going to deepen our trust, our fidelity and loyalty to you, is going to purify the church. We see moral trends and and things shifting away from, from these biblical kinds of values. Some of the data looks like almost an even split. And it's not just parties. It's way beyond that. It's deeper than that. It reflects moralities and ethics. And that reflects a godlessness that is creeping. God, may we be faithful. May we be steadfast. May we learn how to be a Daniel, a Joseph, an Esther, a Mordecai in this world around us. We pray your blessing on the activities going forward in the season. Uh, May they be rich for worship and engaging for outreach. And we ask that indeed we would be a fruitful ministry of worship, of fellowship, of discipleship, that we would in fact see men and women and boys and girls come to Jesus through our efforts here. We pray your blessing on our missionaries further around the world. And this day, would you lift their hearts, give them a promise in keeping with your word, These things and so much more in our hearts we bring to you. In Jesus' name, amen.